I want you to open in your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, the passage that we read this morning. And I begin with a question. What is the most powerful force described in the Bible? Besides God, obviously. Obviously, God is all-powerful. He is the Almighty God. Some of you may say faith. Faith is a very powerful force. Faith connects you to the promise of God, if you want to describe it as a, as a force, force. The Bible says faith can move mountains. If you have faith of the, the grain of a mustard seed, really itty-bitty, tiny, about the size of a seed tick, if you have faith, just, just that amount of faith, you can, you can do mighty things. But did you know that unbelief is also very powerful? Faith connects you to the promises of God, and unbelief keeps you from the promises of of God. As I was preparing this past week, someone reminded me of of the verse that everybody knows, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believe or believeth in Him, there's the faith part, then you you will have or obtain eternal life. But do you know the next verse? He who believes in Him is not judged, there's faith, but he who does not believe, that's the unbelief, is judged already, because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Unbelief is a powerful thing. I thought of a personal story. uh, It's probably one of the most shocking examples of unbelief that that I've ever encountered. There was a man that, that I used to run around with as a as an unsaved person, and his brother was dying. His brother lay dying in a, with cancer. And he was in the final stages, the final days of his life, and his brother was lost, and his brother began to ask for someone to come and talk to him about the Lord. But my friend had absolute control of who got in and who got out, and he refused to let anyone in to see him if they were going to talk to him about Christ. He said he didn't believe it in life, and so there's no reason to tell him about it now. I don't believe it anyway. It's a bunch of junk. And as far as I know, sadly, his brother perished without, without Christ. Unbelief is powerful because it limits a person's ability to receive the most powerful gift in the entire universe, which is the grace of God. And in our passage today, Jesus stands in amazement. He marvels at the unbelief, as you heard in the passage, that he encounters in his hometown of Nazareth. And, and in this passage, we're going to see four lessons about, about unbelief and how unbelief functions in our heart. And you're going to want to pay very close attention because just as unbelief, the way unbelief manifested in the, in the townsfolk in Nazareth is the same way that it's going to rise in your own heart whether you're a believer or, a, or an unbeliever. We're, we're commanded to pray, Lord, I believe, as a Christian, I believe, help my unbelief. We're, we're still susceptible to unbelief. Israel was susceptible to, to unbelief. We're warned not to follow after Israel's unbelief. But for us, we're already in Christ. So unbelief keeps us from the blessings of God, keeps us from obeying God, keeps us from the, from the will of God. But if you're here lost this morning, unbelief will keep you from receiving Christ to to begin with. This is a significant passage. It's one of the reasons Mark includes it in his short gospel. It's significant because there's only two times in the entire Bible where Jesus says he was amazed or he marveled. And the first one 
is he was amazed at a, at a centurion's faith. You remember that? He's amazed at this centurion who says, you don't even need to come to my house, just command. I'm a, I'm a military leader. I command men and they do what they say. You just command and it'll be done. And Jesus was amazed at this man's faith. And the other time is right here where he is amazed at the unbelief in Nazareth. It's quite stunning. In every passage up to this point in the Gospel of Mark, uh, Jesus, when he's declared to be Lord, when he's declared to be Lord over the storm, over nature, over over the, the demonic world, over uh, disease and death, the people are amazed and astonished and they marvel. But in this passage, Jesus is the one who marvels. You know the song, I stand amazed at the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. You've probably sang that before. I have many times. In, in Nazareth, Jesus would sing, Jesus the Nazarene stands amazed at your unbelief. And the scene is placed in a, in a transition in the Galilean ministry. I'll show that to you in just a minute. Jesus has already presented himself to the towns uh, around and the people are largely rejecting him. And as they do, he begins to speak in parables. He gives more truth to those who are responding in faith. He, he gives less truth to those who are rejecting. He gives several massive displays of his deity in the storm and then the, the, the demons and the resurrection and the masses continue to reject. And he is in the very next passage, we'll see this next Sunday, in the very next passage, Jesus is about to send his disciples out. Up to this point, he's done all the preaching. And he's done all the healing. He's done all of the ministry. And they've been with him. He's chosen them. They're with him. He's teaching them. They're observing. But in the very next verses, after this scene in Nazareth, he's going to send the disciples out and they're going to preach. And they're going to have authority. And they're going to take the gospel message. And they're going to experience the same thing that Jesus experiences here in Nazareth. And so after these ultimate displays of his power that that should have brought the whole region to Jesus... He returns to Nazareth one final time. And he's, I, in, when, you, when, it, when the Bible says he, was, he marvels or he was amazed, that's not like Jesus is going, oh, wow, I didn't know that was going to happen. I mean, he knows what's coming. The opposition and unbelief is, is not going to, to get better. He's, he's going to the cross. And the proper response to, to, to Jesus is faith. And that was the... That was the point of Jairus and the woman. Faith takes away, takes away fear. And there's this, there's this contrast between the faith of a sick woman that, that was, that if I can just touch him, if I can just grasp hold of the, of the, the corner of his garment, or the tassel on his garment, then I'll be made well. And Jesus praises her faith. There's a contrast between her and this lack of faith that he encounters in, in Nazareth. Jesus is not always met with faith. Sometimes he's met with fear. And it only goes that far, and rightly so. But many times it's unbelief. And both are, are powerful. Faith connected the woman to the power of Christ, and unbelief kept the people of Nazareth from the power of Christ. Well, we've already read Mark chapter 6, and there's, there's, there's really three scenes. There's the leaving from Capernaum, which is in verse 1, this, this introduction. Jesus went out from there. That's, that's from Capernaum. Then there's the, the loathing in Nazareth, which is the heart where, where the crowd is, is astonished. They question and they're offended. 
And then he ends with this lacking of miracles. Jesus answers, the prophet has no honor. And then it, it says he could do no miracle except he laid hands on a few sick folk and he, and he marveled. And, and, and in all of those scenes, unbelief is the, is the theme. I mean, that's the punchline at the end. He marveled at their unbelief. But that unbelief can be seen in, in him leaving Capernaum and that unbelief can be seen in, in the interaction in the, middle of the, in the middle of the synagogue. So this is how I would outline it. There's four lessons about the amazing power of, of unbelief. Unbelief entertains with curiosity. You're going to see that in the first verse in the beginning of, of the second one where they listen to Jesus in the synagogue. Unbelief deflects with questions. They begin to ask, where did he get this power? Where's this teaching? Where's this wisdom coming from? Unbelief suppresses with scorn. And unbelief hardens with rejection. Let's look at the first one. Unbelief entertains with, with curiosity. Look at verse 1. It says, Jesus went out from there and came into his hometown, and his disciples followed him. Now, there's several important details in this verse. It tells us he, he leaves Capernaum, but it, but it describes the way he leaves. It tells us that he comes to Nazareth, his hometown, and it tells us the disciples are, are with him. When it says that Jesus went out from there, it, he leaves Jairus' house and he heads to, heads to Nazareth, but that doesn't just mean that he traveled. The words that are used there doesn't just mean that he traveled from Capernaum to, to, to Nazareth. It, it, it means he's leaving Capernaum. He's leaving it behind. It's, he's leaving his home base. Capernaum was, was the operation of of the Galilean ministry. And I said there's a transition. The disciples are getting ready to, to go out. But, but Jesus, at this point, will leave Capernaum and he'll never return there again as, as home base. He'll visit. He'll show up and do a few things. He'll pass through because it's the evangelical triangle. You have to go through Capernaum to get to, to, get to other places. He'll, he'll occasionally visit, but it's going to be in passing. And at this point, he leaves and he never comes back. And it's because of their rejection. Capernaum rejected Christ. How, how do we know that? Listen to Matthew eleven twenty. You'll know it as soon as I read it. Woe unto you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles... Think about it in the context. The miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you. They would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And it goes on. In you, Capernaum, you will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, in, in, in your town, Sodom would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Whoa. He says this to, to Capernaum. What's he condemning them for? It's unbelief. And so from the very first word, you see this unbelief. Capernaum had heard enough, they'd seen enough, they believed, they should have believed, and now they've rejected enough. And so he leaves there, and the disciples are with him. Now, you're going to find in the next passage their presence is important because Jesus knows what's coming for, for them, and he's getting ready to send them out, so he wants them along, and he's going to instruct them. And they're going to observe this massive rejection in, in Nazareth. Jesus was always teach, teaching. So he comes to his hometown. 
That's the other third detail that's, that's there. Now, I want you to notice there's no mention of a large crowd. There's no mention of a whole lot of interest. In fact, it just tells us that Jesus is only able to heal a few sick folk. In every other place, the, the crowd is there. The crowd is waiting, waiting on the seashore for him to come back from, from the demoniac. They, they're, they're there when he leaves. They're there when they come back. And they're clamoring. They're pressing on him to the point that the disciples go, what do you mean who touched you? Look at all these people around you. And he comes to Nazareth, his hometown, and there's no mention of crowd. There's, there's no fanfare. There's, there's, there's not a lot of interest and that's because he's been there before in Luke 4. I don't think Mark 6, 1 through 6 is the same as Luke 4 where, where the visit doesn't go too well. Jesus goes to his hometown at the very beginning of his ministry. He goes in the synagogue. It comes time to read the scroll. He gets out the great Isaiah scroll in, and, and, and reads Isaiah 61. And he says, today, he reads it, today the Scripture is fulfilled in your ears. And he basically announces to his hometown before he starts the ministry in Galilee, I am the Messiah. I have come to preach to the, the spiritual prisoners and the blind and the lame. I'll bring the good news to them. And, and, and then he indicts them for their unbelief and they go nuts. I mean, they, they drive him out of the synagogue. They take him to the brow of the hill. They try to throw him off the brow of the of the hill, they try to kill him. And that was the attitude the last time. And we already know in Mark what's the attitude of his brothers are. Remember when, when the town folk and the, the religious leaders in Capernaum call the big guns up from Jerusalem? And in that scene, Jesus' family comes from Nazareth to get him because they think he's crazy. I mean, we've got to rescue him from himself. I mean, he left Nazareth. He's over here in Capernaum. He thinks he's the Messiah. It literally says they think he's insane. So they go to try to rescue him. Mary believes, but his brothers and sisters, who are mentioned in this passage, don't. And they think he's nuts. So the town folk are, are mad. They tried to kill him. His own family thinks he's mad. And now he comes back to this town. This is the second visit. The first time, there's no mention of disciples. The disciples haven't been called. This time, the disciples are, are with him. And he leaves Capernaum. And he comes back, and if you want to think of it this way, he gives Nazareth another chance. And the result seals their fate. I'll give you what at verse 2. No crowds, but when the Sabbath came, he, I mean, Jesus was a good Jew. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many listeners were astonished. I mean, talk about love. The last time he preached there, they tried to kill him, and, and, and he returns. But, but if you're like me, the first question that, that you would be asking was, if this is a different scene than Luke 4, why did they invite him to preach again? I mean, the last time he preached, they ran him out, and he, they tried to kill him. And this time, it says he's teaching in the synagogue. Why did they let him, why did they let him preach if, if the last time they tried to murder him? And I would say it's because of... This first point, unbelief entertains with, with itself with curiosity. Verse 2, the end of verse 2 says they were, they were astonished, they were amazed. It's human nature to watch a fire, isn't it? What do you do when you're driving down the road and you see a wreck along the side of the road? Well, the first thing I do, I pray. I do. But then whenever you're driving, I mean, there, there are three lanes open 
And there's one. The, the, the car is over on the, the, the side of the road. There's nothing blocking, but, but you're locked up in five miles of traffic. Why? People are watching. You know, when they're traveling by, they're not paying attention. I don't think that they invited Jesus to teach in the synagogue because they're interested in hearing the Bible or interested in his message. They're interested in a spectacle. His popularity had grown since the last time. His miracles had grown since the first time. Think about where this is in Mark. He just raises a girl from the dead in Capernaum. Nazareth knew what was going on around the Sea of Galilee. Why would they invite him? They they want to watch. They want to see what, what he will say. It would have been customary to invite a, a traveling rabbi. Now he's more popular. Maybe he'll do some miracle in our midst. Let's see. Let's see what he'll do. Let's see what he'll say. It's not hard to draw a crowd. I mean, you understand that. People will come if you just give them what they want. Unbelief is entertained with, with curiosity. They'll, they'll listen if you promise them a... Uh, promise them a show or some animated uh, speech or props or programs or wh- whatever it is. They'll come to watch the show. They'll, they'll show curiosity. They'll come for, for the show, but when it comes to the demands of the gospel, they're, they're turned off and then they, then they resist and they walk away. Wait a minute, I, I just came to be curious. I came to be amazed. I came to be entertained. I don't want you messing with, with, my, with my lunchbox here. And unbelievers want to experience God, but not bow to God. They, they want the gifts. They don't want to follow the, the, giver, the giver. And Sadly, many church leaders and, and even some Christians think that's a good philosophy of, of ministry. Church is like a business. Growing, it's like a marketing plan. Get a good buzz, give the people what they want, and then more will come. And if you don't, they'll say they'll go elsewhere. And sadly... In some places, that's that's true. They treat going to church like trying a new restaurant. There's a, man, did you hear about the new restaurant in town? I hear it's pretty good. Let's go over there. Hey, uh, did you hear about the new church in town? Why do you think they keep planting churches in Lynchburg? You think Lynchburg lacks the gospel? Because it's easy pickings. You can start a church in Lynchburg, Virginia, and have 200 people in six months. I'm serious. You can. happens all the time. And you look at the people in them, they aren't new converts, they're people from other churches that are there for something new. Curiosity drew them, boredom drove them, whatever. I told the staff the other day, I saw a slogan of a new one, bringing hope to Lynchburg, as if Lynchburg's never had hope before. How about taking hope to Massachusetts, where there is no churches out of the Bible Belt? How about taking hope to Saudi Arabia? I'd be impressed with that. I'm not impressed by coming to Lynchburg and drawing struggling sheep from existing churches for a new experience. Sadly, most blow in, blow up, and blow away, and they leave the people that get caught up in the wind worse than they found them. And unbelief must be entertained. And so be careful. It may reveal more about your heart than you realize. Because amazement quickly wears off, and then it turns to questioning. Look you would at verse 2. B, unbelief deflects with questions. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many listeners were astonished. And look at what they said. They deflect with questions. Where, where did this man get these things? 
And, and what is the wisdom given to him? And such miracles as these performed by, by his hands. It has nothing to do with the message. It has nothing to do with, with, with what Jesus taught. It has nothing to do with, with, with dealing with the truth or with the text. It has everything to do with, with questioning. It's deflections. We don't even know what Jesus spoke on, but we know how the people responded. Many listeners were astonished. It's a really strong verb. They're, they're wowed. And then immediately they begin describing the, the questions. When the message begins to convict or turn from something other than what they want to hear, they deflect the truth through questions. They're, where did this man get these things? It introduces five questions that they, that they ask. One is about the wisdom. What is this wisdom given to him? There's one. And what are these miracles performed by his hands? That's, that's, that's two. Is not this a carpenter? That's three. The son of Mary. Is this not the, the son of Mary? Brother of James. Joseph, which we would call Joseph. And Judas and Simon. And five are not his sisters here with us. And these first three questions are all about the source of his teaching and, and his abilities. Where, where, where? Where did this come from? Where did he get this wisdom? Where did he get this power? And there's only one obvious answer. It's from God. He's the one who, he already told them who he was. He came the first time and says, I'm the Messiah. And he's been proving that in the, in the ministry. I mean, there's no purpose for these, for these questions. I mean, these questions aren't, aren't going anywhere. What's the origin? How can he do that? They're, they're more concerned about the explanation for his teaching than the teaching itself. And that's what unbelief does. Unbelief goes all around the barn as long as it doesn't have to deal with the truth. You ever witness to somebody like that? They've got a hundred questions about translations and about the pygmies in Africa and whatever else it is, but they don't want to deal with the one question that they must deal with that you're presenting to them. Who is Jesus Christ and what are you going to do with it? Who's Christ? It'll go everywhere but the obvious, the conversation. And when the Word of God begins to convict and takes away comfort or confronts, unbelief wants to deflect. And that's what you do. You just receive that question and you throw it right to the side and you come right back to whatever the issue is. And you just you grab hold of that and you, you just you just like a football player. Just don't don't lock up with them and get in some big theological argument. The point is not the theological argument. They could care less. You could probably destroy them with the Bible. You know more than they do. That's not the point. It's a deflection to keep them from dealing with the very thing that you came to share with them, that they need to deal with. And that's what these questions are are here for. You heard it what what about all the different translations in the Bible? You receive that. And you deflect that. Well, what about the, the one that's right in front of you saying you're a sinner? What will you do with that? What about the natives in the jungle that may never hear the gospel? I, I couldn't believe in a God that wouldn't give them a chance. You say, well, what about you? The person God's given a hundred chances and has given another one right now. What, what, what are you going to do? What about all the evil in the world? How, how could a good God allow such evil? Well, what about the evil in your own heart? And what about the evil that, that is going gonna, is gonna to take place when you've rejected the good God who sent me to you today? 
God doesn't mind questions. He's not scared of questions. The Bible can withstand any question the greatest skeptic could, could ever come up with. But there's a difference between asking to know and, and asking to deflect or to excuse. And that's what they're doing here. Many questions are just an excuse not to deal with, with what you, you do know. Let me try to explain away the plain truth right, right in front of you. Maybe you look in your own heart and, and, and give an honest answer. That, that's where some of your questions come from. If you've been rejecting Christ, gosh, man, I mean, a global flood, a great fish, come on. And when that doesn't work, you begin to try to discredit the the source. This second part of the, the question, unbelief suppresses with scorn. Notice these first questions. Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? And, and, and where did that wisdom come from? And where are these miracles performed by his power? But watch how the questions shift to personal questions, personal attack. Scornful questions in verse 3. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they asked these because they took offense at him. It's a, it's, this first question, is not this the carpenter? It's, they speak it with disdain. Is not, is, is not this the carpenter? Meaning, not a rabbi, not a scribe, not a synagogue leader, not a guy with a with a with a master's or a doctorate, not an educated man. I mean, that's what they're saying. He's a carpenter. Look at what else they say. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? That's interesting, isn't it? The son of Mary. It's strange. If you if you turn back to, to Luke chapter 4, before, in verse 22, I want to show you something quickly. Matthew, Mark, Luke, I guess you would turn forward. Luke 4, here's the first time that he shows up in, in Nazareth. Luke four twenty-two. Look at how this, how this says, and think of the contrast, the difference between the second time he comes. Verse 22, and all were speaking well of him. And wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? Hmm. And he said to them, no doubt you will quote the proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Now things get, begin to turn. And whatever you've heard done in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said to you, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth that there are many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months and when a great famine came all over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to a, a Gentile. 
a dog in Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them were cleansed, but say, Naaman the Syrian, another Gentile dog. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage when they heard these things, and they got up and they tried to drive him out of the city. You see the change? They were, they were wondering, they were speaking well of him. Turn back to Mark 5, Mark 6, I should say, back to your text. And they say, is this not Joseph's son? Before he punches them in the mouth. <laughs> and now they say, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? The son of Joseph is how you referred to people in a respectful way. Even if the father was dead, still son of Joseph. It's how you, it's how you honored someone. You never said son of Mary or son of a woman. So why the change? They're calling him the son of Mary as a way of slandering him. It's in Nazareth. It's like you remember the rumors. They're not saying the rumors, but son of Mary. You remember in our town there was this illegitimate birth story sometime back. It's a way of discredit. He's not a scribe. He's not a Pharisee. He's a carpenter. And he's the son of Mary. Why listen to this guy? He's not even interesting. He does this or he does that. But what about the words that he speaks? What will you do with those? Look at what else they say. The son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. Now, this is not just to list Jesus' brothers, but this is an important text. It shows us very clearly that Mary is not a perpetual virgin and that there were other siblings that Jesus had as the Catholic Church would, would tell you. But that's not the only reason. It's not the only benefit of this. Why are they asking this question? Is this not the, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And they end with pointing to the brothers and the sisters who have already declared him to be mad and out of his mind. Mary doesn't believe that. We know that very clearly. Mary's still at the cross, and Mary was was there rejoicing when the angel came to Mary. But his brothers and sisters already think he's nuts. They go to Capernaum to try to get it, and that's what they're saying. They're pointing, saying, look here, it's his family, right? You remember what his family tried to do? They tried to rescue this joker back in, in Capernaum. They think he's mad. Do you remember when they left just a few months ago? They went for his own good. Is it not it's the same guy? Look at it. It's the same guy. That's what they're doing. What a condemnation. The voice of heaven in the baptism in Mark 1, this is my beloved son, this is what God declares, in whom I am well pleased. The demons, three different times in Mark up to this point, declare Jesus is the Son of God. But the people of Nazareth say he is an illegitimate child, son of Mary, brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and various unnamed sisters, because anything else means that they're accountable to do something with his words. And verse 3b at the very end tells us why they took offense at him. They were scandalized. Literally, that's what that word means, to scandalize. And when questions don't deflect, unbelief moves to despising and it attacks the messenger. That's what they're doing. They're attacking the messenger. If you can't explain away the message, you attack the 
the, the messenger. Well, they're just a bunch of, of dumb Bible thumpers. I mean, really? You believe in creation? Come on. Right? That's what they do. Just turn on the TV. It's the attitude of an unbeliever when pressed with the truth. When they can't escape the truth, they turn on the person who shares it. Can you understand why it's important for the disciples to be here and watch Jesus go through this when they're getting ready to be sent out next? What's going to happen to the disciples? They're going to, they're going to roll into towns that Jesus has preached in and, and they're going to roll into towns that Jesus hasn't preached in and they're going to be such eloquent preachers that everyone's going to believe and everyone's going to listen and they're going to be the, the, the heroes. Is that what, what's going to happen? Is that what happens whenever you share the gospel? Do more people reject the gospel? Then receive the gospel? There's more on the broad road, less on the the straight and narrow going through the the single gate. Now, that shouldn't be because of your effort. (laughs) It should be because of their unbelief. He's preparing the disciples to go, which is going to happen in verse 7. Look at verse 7. He summoned the twelve and begins to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over unclean spirits. They're going to have the same powers and same message and same authority and they're going to be rejected just like Jesus. What does the Bible say about how the world's going to, going to treat them and treat you? Should you be surprised, should I be surprised when you share the gospel and you're met with hatred or rejection? No. <laughs> you should expect it. Now, you don't have to be a jerk whenever you share it. But the message is offensive. The message says there is one way to heaven. There is one God, and you are a sinner, and you are hopeless, and you, the best that you can do, the absolute best, your best effort is nothing but filthy rags before God, and you get no credit because you're corrupted in your heart, and you're in rebellion against God. You're going to stand before God in judgment one day, But God, being rich in mercy, wherewith He loved us, came. There's the good news. The good news is part of the bad news. Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. doesn't make any sense until you understand that you're on a collision course with a holy God. The Bible says the world will hate you. Why? Well, it should hate you and it will hate you because it hated your master first and you represent him. But it will only do that if you share his message. You can draw a crowd with curiosity. You can give places, sources for your, your wonderful philosophy and your great sermons and your, and your great abilities somewhere other than the wisdom of God and the power of, uh, of God. You can water down the message and, and, and you can be pretty popular, especially in our culture where spirituality is a wonderful thing. But share his message and do it his way. And what you'll find is hatred and rejection for the most part. Unbelief manifests in these three ways. And lastly, it's, it hardens with, with rejection. Look at what Jesus says in verse 4. He said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. He knows exactly what they're saying to him. He knows that the scorn and their attack 
This is a common phrase. Think about what he's saying here. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. You just dishonored me. You just proved that I'm a prophet. That's what Jesus is saying. He's not denying anything. You're right, I am a prophet. Just as it's true, I'll have no honor here. And look at verse 5. And he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick folk and healed them. And he marveled, he wondered at their unbelief. Verse 5 and 6 is really the power punch of the entire passage. Unbelief entertains with curiosity, it deflects with questions, it suppresses with scorn, and it hardens with rejection. Their hardness limited what God would do in their midst. The statement's shocking. He was not able to do any mighty work there. It's presented as a double negative. He was not not able, not any. Now, did the lack of, of Jesus doing this, does this mean that he somehow lacks power? Does this mean that somehow human beings have the ability to control the power of God? That they're greater than God? Of course not. Nothing limits God. Their unbelief limited what they could receive. And your unbelief limits what you can receive. What's the purpose of miracles? Look at what it says here. He could do no mighty work there. It's the same word as... as is what he did for the, for the woman when she believes. He could do no miracle, no mighty work there, except he lays his hands on a few sick people who, who were there. What's the purpose of miracles? Put on a miracle show? Well, if you turn on TV, that's probably what, what you would think. It's to attest to the truth. And if you've rejected the truth, there's no need for any miracles. There's no need for any mighty works. Because you've already rejected the truth. This comes at the end. They've already rejected the message. They've rejected the message a second time. They responded to Jesus and they responded to the message of the gospel with scorn. They questioned the source. They deflected. They did all of these things. Look at his family thinks he's mad. There's no purpose for miracles. Miracles were not performances, but to demonstrate the the coming kingdom and to enter the kingdom and experience the power, you, you must... Repent and believe. This word says, this last passage of the people of Nazareth are outside of the kingdom. And Jesus says that in the proof is they rejected him just like they did the prophets. Seeing God do amazing things does not automatically result in faith because unbelief is a powerful thing. What does James say? Whenever you look into the, the perfect mirror of the law of the Lord, how quickly does the amazing thing that God showed you or convicted you of leave just about as fast as you turn away? And it's over now in Nazareth. Jesus grew up there. They rejected him. He came and announced the beginning of his ministry in Luke 4, and he's returned again, and each time their hearts got harder and harder and harder. Just like yours will if you reject Christ today. And Jesus will leave Nazareth and will not return. I want to end with this. I was reading a writer this past week and he asked the question, Have you ever thought about how foolish unbelief is? 
Unbelief chooses hell. Unbelief chooses Satan. Unbelief chooses sin. Unbelief chooses to go it alone, my way, in the kingdom of darkness with no divine intervention. He said, is that really what you want? So you don't want to be blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies. You don't want love, joy, peace, gentleness, faith, meekness, self-control. You don't want prayers answered. You don't want divine intervention in your life. You don't want supernatural wisdom. You don't want supernatural direction, hope, the promise of heaven, peace that passes understanding. You don't want those things. Why wouldn't you want those things? Those things are available to you freely to anyone here today. And the only reason that you would reject those things is not logic. It's because of unbelief. Beware of the power of unbelief. It never has enough evidence. It always does biased research. It will reject the facts because it is totally self-centered and self-protective and will shut itself off from all divine power.